you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. Um, I've been asked a couple times why we take a moment to pray before the sermon uh, with such um, intentionality and um, very simply, a couple reasons. One is um, that the Bible commends us and calls us to pray and read the Word publicly, so we do together. Uh, but more importantly, I think, is that in doing that, um, and as we gather here, let's not forget the reason why we're gathered. It is to align ourselves with the truth. And as we're living out in the world uh, during the week, uh, we can forget what life is all about. And even when we gather here, we can wrongly believe that we're the only church gathered right now. And it's not often uh, that we gather together and we pray for what is going on in the world together and agree together uh, that we need God and we need Him to move and to uh, surrender ourselves corporately together in doing that. And to remember things like our persecuted brothers and sisters. I don't know how often uh, the fact that there are people dying for their Christian faith daily and people being uh, persecuted across the world, that's not just an ancient history thing that's happening now. And so uh, it's important for us to do that. And it's important for us to not just agree together, but listen very very carefully what is being said uh, and to hopefully uh, pray outside of these walls uh, for the same thing. So that's why. And we'll continue to do that and have other people pray in the same vein. But one of the best ways to align ourselves with God and to remember who we are and why we're here is to spend time in Genesis. And that's what we're doing. So I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 1 and I'll begin in verse 3 and read a good portion of the first chapter um, and uh, see what God has to say. So if you follow along with me, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening and it was morning the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great, creature, great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And we'll stop there. This is God's Word. And I wonder what it would be like if we began our days reading Genesis chapter 1, just to remind us of some really basic, basic truths. Last week, um, we really talked about the first verse, which are the first seven words of the Bible in Hebrew, so don't count them where you go, what? He was wrong. In Hebrew, uh, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And they authoritatively declare that God created the universe. We have a God who creates. The universe did not bring itself into existence. It's not random. It's not accidental. And therefore, it's not meaningless. The universe is a creation. One that is separate from our Creator, God. And one that is dependent on Him, accountable to Him, and sustained by Him. And the purpose of that universe, the purpose of creation that we spent time talking about last week is to reveal the greatness of the God who's there and to lead us to worship Him. And we see in Genesis chapter 1 as we've continued to read that the God who is there speaks. God is not some cold, sterile robot or unfeeling force. He is a personal God who speaks the world into existence by His Word. And what we see in Genesis chapter 1 as we think about the created world of which we are a part of, but there are two things, Creator and creation. So all of creation, we see in Genesis 1 that creation responds to God's Word. It does what, it, what, it, what He says for it to do. When He tells the waters to stop, they stop. The mountains to rise, they rise. Creation responds to God's Word. And we see, as we continue to read in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that when creation functions as God designed it to be, then it's good and it's beautiful. And so, we've titled this series Bedrock because there's some real basic things as we kind of clear away all of the extra dirt, and I don't mean that necessarily negatively, of Christianity, and get down to the bedrock, the basics, the things that we build our faith on. And today we're talking about the bedrock of our faith, and where I believe it begins is where Genesis begins, and that's with the Word of God. The Word of God. And if you hear nothing today, I ask that you would remember this, and I will say it a couple times, that your, our abiding satisfaction, our abiding satisfaction in our relationship with God is determined by our relationship with His Word. And one's relationship with the Word of God is determined by what you believe the Word of God to be. This to be. So abiding satisfaction 
in one's relationship with God is determined by your relationship to His Word. And that relationship is determined by what you actually think this is. Now, the world thinks this is just a book. And in many ways it is a book. The word Bible comes from the Greek word for book. But it's not really a book. We want to be technical. It's a collection of books. 66 books. 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. may surprise you to know, or maybe you do know, it's written in three languages. Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. Over a period of more than 3,000 years, it was written by over 40 different authors. Some we know, some are anonymous on three different continents. We know that many of these authors included kings and peasants and philosophers and fishermen, poets, politicians, scholars, even tax collectors. Books include different things like sermons. There are books that are just letters to friends, letters to churches. There's a big song book. There is a love poem even. In all of those things, there are all kinds of different kinds of literature, we'll call them. You have geographical surveys. You have architectural specifications. You have travel diaries. You have population statistics. You have family trees. You have inventories. You have numerous legal documents. It's a book unlike any other book. It deals with hundreds, perhaps every controversial subject under the sun there is, and it does so with amazing unity across all 66 books. It is the number one book recommended by any college of repute to have read so that you can understand the other literature in this world. And it is the best-selling book of all time now available in nearly 3,000 languages and who knows how many apps. But the question for all of us, particularly for those who claim to be Christians, is, is that all it is? Is it really just an old, important collection of literature written by a bunch of religious guys and a few fishermen? And so today I want you to know that I have an agenda. My agenda is to, if needed, and I think it's needed for a lot of us, to either renew or realign our perspective on what this actually is. Because this is the bedrock of my faith, of our faith, of this church. Genesis 1, I believe, is incredibly important, and maybe the last thing you think of, to understand the true nature of God's Word. What we see in Genesis 1 is that His Word has life, and His Word has power, and His Word has authority, and we will see that His Word has a very specific purpose. And the truths that, that those particular truths that I just stated are shared in this pattern we see in Genesis that I think if we read it too quickly, Genesis 1 in particular, we miss it. We see God um, speaking and declaring things, and then God making things, and then God seeing things and, and judging things. All connected with His Word. And so we start with the beginning of the pattern, which is this declaration God said. And if you go through and circle in your Bible, you'll see it shows up multiple times. God said, God said, God said, then God said. 
Reminds us of the prophets of the Old Testament who often said, Thus saith the Lord. We have a God who speaks. And when He speaks, the words that come out are probably best described as His expressed will. It is a declaration of what He desires His creation to be like. That's what we see in Genesis 1. He speaks. He's declaring what He wants the creation to be. And we know that having created, as we saw last week, the heavens and the earth, now He, in many ways, begins to declare what He has formed, how it's supposed to function. God is not, in Genesis 1, commanding some power outside of Himself. There is no power outside of God. And I think it's noteworthy to think about this fact that because He does not have to speak words, that God does not have to create with words, but but the fact is He does. And because He doesn't have to, the fact that He does speak reveals to us something about how He is going to engage with this world and His creation. How He's going to relate to His people, and all things that He created. That God speaks implies that we have a God who can communicate, which means speaking and hearing. And there is in some way a capacity for His creation to respond. Put really simply, creation, and that includes men and women, people, we are built to respond to God's Word. We are designed to respond to God's Word. We are supposed to respond to God's Word. And because of sin, we have a very negative response apart from Christ. But as we see in Genesis 1, that's what we were made for. And God desires, and all that He wants is expressed in words we can understand. That's amazing if we talk about the infinite God who I said last week's ways are above our ways. Thoughts are above our thoughts. We still have an expressed word like a father speaking to his child that we can understand. These words, his words, his expressed desire has been recorded in what we call Scripture, which is another word saying writings. It is the recorded words of God. Contrary to, uh, we'll just call pagan thinking, the Bible is not man's effort to make up or reach God. The Bible is God's effort to reach us, to communicate to us, to reveal to us His heart. In the Old Testament, if you would go through the, the histories and the stories you would see that at many times God commanded His prophets to not just speak, but to write down what He said. And in the New Testament, we have uh, the epistles. And and Peter writes in his second epistle this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 
Just as the Spirit we see in the second verse of Genesis moved over the face of the deep, and then we see eventually moving all of the earth, so the Spirit moved through men. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a verse we often reference. It says that all Scripture, all the writings that we have here, are breathed out by God. They're God-breathed. That is, Scripture are not the words of men that God just puffed in His divineness and made them work. It wasn't like they wrote stuff and then it became divine. They're God-breathed. They come out of His mouth, the very breath of God. The Word of God is God Himself speaking. These words are God's words. His very words. And as Deuteronomy 29.29 says, and I'll probably revisit this verse a lot as we go through this, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of His law. So these things, right? We don't know what the secret things are. That's what makes them secret. And I'm pretty sure God's pretty good at keeping secrets. We're not, but He is. So as much as we try to figure out a knock on the door of, come on, you can tell me how this all works. Not gonna. But there's a pile He has revealed. He said, look, I have revealed and this belongs to you. And I believe that this revelation comes through His Word. This is what He has revealed. This is what belongs to us. And this Word is is without error. And this Word is full of truth. And we have to be so careful when churches or Christians talk about what the Spirit's saying today. There's a new thing happening today. Spirit speaking today, let me be clear about what our position is. That what the Spirit of God says today has been said yesterday by a Spirit in His Word. And what the Spirit says today leads us directly to here. And many of us, I shouldn't say many of us, there are many Christians that won't like that. Oh, come on, what the Spirit's saying today is said yesterday. That's, a, that's old. That's, that's past tense. That's dead? What does the Word of God say about itself in Hebrews 4.12? It's not an old book. It's not a dead book. It's not an irrelevant ancient book. It's a living book. It's an active book. It's a sharp book. Because it's the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is not some dead, ancient, irrelevant book that has no bearing. It is the declaration of God's will and desires which do not change. So that's what we see. God speaks. Okay, God speaks. But more than that happens. What happens when God speaks? And you see this pattern unfold. That when God declares His Word, things happen. Things move. Things are created. It says God speaks, then He makes. God speaks, says let there be light, there's light. God says let there be sky, there's sky. Land, land. Trees, trees. Water, water. Lakes, lakes. He calls 
that into existence which didn't exist by his word. And the declaration of his will is not simply noise to notify us what God would like to happen. It is what does and will happen. See, Genesis 1 portrays God's word as the most powerful force in all of creation. And his word is irresistible. And his plans come forth without obstruction on his timeline, not ours. But they come to pass. Which gives us incredible confidence when God speaks promises that we have yet to experience. Because we see when he speaks, it happens. And verses like Isaiah 14, verse 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. What God wants to happen, when He wants it to happen, who He wants it to happen to, and the way He wants it happens. And as He declares something, we can take confidence that if we haven't seen it yet, we're going to. Genesis 1 shows us that when His Word comes forth, things move. And if God desires so to move the country in a particular way, a person in a particular way, to build up, to break down, to do whatever, it will happen. We need to remember we're not just talking about some powerful person. We are talking about the sovereign God who can do what is impossible. The sovereign God who has declared He is going to do what is impossible. Now, we see that in creation. And, and we see in Genesis chapter 1 this picture of the visible things that He creates. Colossians 1 puts a description of Jesus Christ as supremely greater than all things, creator of all things, visible and invisible. And we see the visible things in Genesis 1 where God speaks and we see things created really for us, for man to enjoy, for man to, to uh, really ultimately worship Him through. Genesis reveals His power to create the visible for us, but I wonder if we forget the power of God's Word to create actually in us. It's the same Word. What do I mean by that? If you uh, ever take time to read Psalm 119. I say time because it's 176 verses. If pretty much the center of your Bible, if you opened up and you go through these Psalms, you're like 25 verses, 15 verses, 35 verses, then you get 176. You're like, that's a long song, right? That's like Bohemian Rhapsody or According to your word. Joy, according to your word. This, according to your word. This, according to your word. All celebrating the beauty of God's word. And so you think about the power that God's word has to create. We serve a God who can, who can call us or command us, even in his Psalms, to feel certain things that I don't feel right now. You go, how is that even possible? 
because He is a Creator who creates by His Word. How does this play out? I believe the Word of God, this, the Word of God has the power to create knowledge where there is only ignorance. The Word of God has the power to create healing where there is brokenness. The Word of God has the power to create understanding where there is confusion. Hope where there is hopelessness. Forgiveness where there is only bitterness. How can the Word of God do that? I see the Word of God. Call out of nothing something to exist. I only feel bitterness. I do not want to forgive. And God's Word calls us to forgive and demonstrates in His Word what it looks like for Jesus to forgive us and then suddenly forgiveness is created where it did not exist. I believe God's Word has the power to create strength where there's only weakness, beauty where there's only ash, love where there's only hate, and even life where there is only death. That's the power of God's Word. Romans 1.16 said it is the power for salvation. To bring those people, the Bible says, are dead and blind to give them life and sight. That is the power of God's Word. Genesis shows us not only the power of God's Word to shape His creation, but that the Word of God has the power to actually create where there is nothing in us. Some believe that the Bible is just an ancient myth of an old people. Some believe it's an irrelevant religious rule book written by um, really smart Bible guys. Others, that it's a tremendously important piece of literature. I believe that the Bible contains the very word and power of God. And they are not to be viewed as the rules of some kind of cosmic killjoy that wants us to have difficulty in life, but those of a loving Father who gave us His Word that we might understand what it means and enjoy being His children and His creations. And that it actually possesses the power to create that in us. But the pattern of Genesis keeps going and says that God says, and when He says something is made, but then He sees it and He calls it something, He judges it and he says that it's good. Like there's a declaration and then there's this, this creation of something and there's an evaluation of it. And it comes through his word. Not only do we see the power of God's word, we see the authority that exists in God's word. Basically, Genesis 1 proves that creation is good when it functions according to God's word. God made the world good. But men in the rebellion made it bad. And Romans 1 tells us what happened. It says that men in their sin refused to thank and acknowledge their Creator. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and His perfect designs that were good for us were superseded by our own passions we thought were good for us. And his word says, again, like this is what happens. He says in Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man, that seems good to a man, but in the end it leads to death. 
The Word of God exists as a lamp to guide men back to God's blessing and standard of goodness in all things. In all things. It reminds us, I believe, Genesis chapter 1, that all of creation, again, that's not just the natural world, that is us, that all of creation experiences restoration insofar as it is aligned with God's Word. Husbands, wives, moms, dads, employees, men, women, all these things that we are, these roles, these God has something to say about that. And husbands struggle being husbands insofar as they're not aligned with God's Word as define what a husband is. In Christ. If you open the Bible, husbands will learn, Ephesians chapter 5, what God's plan for a husband was. And it was seen in Jesus. And if a husband aligns himself with God's Word and he lives as Jesus lived, depend upon Him, granted, you ain't going to do it on your own, but flat out, if you love your wife as Christ loved the church, you sacrifice for her, you take responsibility for her, you protect her, you give to her, you serve her in the way that Christ did the church, she will thrive. What kind of wife is not going to love a man who is sacrificial, who is confessional, who is serving, who is loving as Jesus loved the church, bled and died for it? Our problems are directly related to our misalignment with God's Word. And it's the same for wives. It's the same for all things. And we experience restoration insofar as that we align ourselves. I think I used the analogy last week, right? Where we're teacups trying to hammer in nails. Like, why isn't it working? I keep breaking. Because you're meant for tea. Try to drink tea from a hammer. You're going to burn your face and look weird, right? And husbands are like, I'm just going to be husband. I'm just going to be wife. I'm just going to figure it out. Why would you ever do that? Why wouldn't you want to understand what a wife is? What a husband is? And believe that this Word of God can actually create it in you. I believe the Word of God has the power to create where that doesn't exist. And that creation happens as a means of restoring us back to how God wanted us to be. God's Word is the final authority on what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And the world is changing those definitions. Christianity is beginning to question those definitions. And Christians are going, what is good? What is right? And what I see all too often, and you will see it if you read enough of the news, is that even Christians are coming out and going, well, that might have been good back then. Things are changing. Spirit's doing a different thing today. The Word of God does not change. Even though culture changes and men's opinions change, Psalm 119.89 reminds us that forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's standards of goodness and rightness don't change no matter what popular opinion might say. And that is going to become more and more difficult to stand on this than it is to... Basically, it's easier to be popular than it is to be right. 
The same authority, I believe, that verbally was declared in Genesis chapter 1 and declared creation as good is the same authority present in God's written word. Peter actually said, as he talked about the time when he was on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus revealed himself in all his glory, and he saw Moses and Elijah, and, and Jesus is there all bright and crazy, and he hears God say, this is my son, worship him, listen to him. Peter says, that was awesome. But we have something better. He says, the written word. Better than standing before Jesus, listening to the word of God the Father verbally, says, yeah, better. That's the comparison he makes. This is authoritative as God's word is authoritative. It is not only our judge, though, it's the guide to actual goodness. If you read the second part of uh, Timothy 3.16, right? The one that said all Scripture is breathed out by God. You know what else it says? It's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God. Why is it good for that? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You just think about whatever good work it is that you are now failing at. The Word of God's been given so that you can be equipped for every good work. His will is not a mystery. And I'm not suggesting that if you just read it, hey, this happens, you're perfect. But I'm saying that perfection lies there before us and tells us what He calls us to do. God's Word is the source of truth, is the source of wisdom, is the source of all meaning, and it's through His Word that He gives promises and warnings and instructions and commands about all of life. And there's a reason why Paul writes in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world. You know why he has to say don't be conformed to this world, right? Because that's our natural inclination. The world is communicating through all kinds of media today more than any other time in history about what is good and what is right. And what a man is, and what a woman is, and what success is, and what life is, and what marriage is. And if you don't actually listen to God's Word, you will listen to the world. Guaranteed. It will influence you in every way. That's why it says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't listen to the world. Sometimes even part of the Christian world. It says, be renewed in your mind by this. Be transformed by this. Be aligned to this so that when some false, freaky teacher comes up and teaches you something, you say, no, 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 no. I mean, I like you. You're popular. you got a big church. That's awesome. But you're wrong! To the glory of God. His Word has life. His Word has power. It has authority. He declares, He creates, and He judges. But as we close, I want you to understand His primary purpose is to reveal Himself. His primary purpose isn't to make us moral. His primary purpose isn't to make us good. His primary purpose is to reveal Himself, which actually accomplishes all those things. It's noteworthy that as you read Genesis, and I would encourage you to do this, you just highlight the word God you will see that 
Genesis chapter 1, though it is a creation story, it doesn't point to creation as its subject. It points to God as the subject. The word God appears 32 times in 31 verses. 32 times in 31 verses. And verse after verse you read, God said, and then God made, and then God called, and then God did. Creation is supposed to lead us to worship. And when we worship God, I know we use that phrase, it's used often in Christianity and it's not defined very well or often. When we talk about worshiping, really we're talking about declaring and living with Jesus as supreme. It is God's supremacy in our lives. Worship, we worship God when we live under His Lordship. We, we worship God when we find satisfaction in His glory. That's what worship is. God created in order to display His awesomeness. And this is what theologians would call general revelation, right? We're to look and see the created world. To see Mount Baker and go, Whoa! God. God exists. Romans 1 tells us that, right? That His attributes and His existence can actually be seen in the things that are made. Creation was supposed to lead us to worship God. Romans 1 also says that the creation of the world is enough to condemn a man. That the creation itself declares that there is a God so men are without excuse if they deny Him. But it doesn't say that it's enough to save a man. And as many cultures have proven in our world, the history of it, that men are led to worship what they see in creation. Unfortunately, they invariably end up worshiping creation itself. And in ancient times, that was planets and trees and things like that. And today, there's some of that, but there's also worshiping other things in creation, like substances, money, people, relationships. Jobs. Those are all creations of God. And we worship them in the same way that some guy bowed down to some wooden idol and sacrificed meat ancient times. This is why God gave us His Word. He didn't want us to turn His gifts into God's. And He gave us this word, His Word, what we'll call special, relation, to remind, special revelation to remind us that that God that we know exists is not creation. He's apart from creation. Special revelation is His Word. It is His recorded Word. And throughout history, God spoke through men and prophets and priests and kings in order to reveal Himself and His ways. But if you read the Old Testament, here's what you're going to find out. That even the best of men fell short of what God called them to do. God declared, this is my desire. God said, this is what is good, this is what is right, and even the best kings failed and fell short. They disobeyed His Word. Men could not and will not ever be able to rise to the level of God's standard. And we know that by this. And what we also know by this is that because men couldn't rise to God's Word, God's Word came down. John chapter 1 says, 
The Word became flesh. The Word entered into creation that He had made. See, the Word of God does reveal the standard of God's goodness. does reveal that He is authoritative, but then it reveals how far short we're going to fall and we see Jesus. That's why in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's Jesus. God. In human flesh. What did it say God did? He made purification for sins. God's word. All that God is. All that God demands and wants from us. All that God has done is revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you, we, believe that God is gracious enough not only to tell us what to do, He hasn't left life a mystery. He has been gracious enough to speak at our level, to tell us and record what we're to do, but more than that, He's done it for us. He didn't just tell us, He accomplished it for us. And when you believe that, You receive, I believe, His Word implanted as James 1 tells us. In Christ, the Word of God, that Word that that declares all things good and all things right and gives you direction, that Word becomes to be implanted in your heart. And what happens is a change. When you believe, not when you do something, when you believe, when you simply believe, you begin to desire to learn and desire to live and desire to love according to God's Word. What God declares becomes our will. Even if we fail to achieve it. God's power to create is felt in our own recreation as desires and changes in you become birthed by His power, not yours. Stuff that was not there is there. God's authority is totally changed. You no longer view it as like, oh, you're just a big, mean boss man who wants to make my life hard. His instructions become that of a loving Father who wants you to experience the best of life. And God's revelation of a life like Jesus, and let's be careful as we read this, what a life like Jesus is like. A life of sacrifice for others, love for others, servanthood to others. A life of grace to the
and hearing through the Word of Christ. This Word has the power to create life where there is death. And either you need it or someone else does. And so as we come for communion today, you are proclaiming a sermon. You are proclaiming not just belief, but deep conviction that Jesus Christ died the death that you deserved. You know you deserved it because this says so. And you feel it too. You feel guilty. You feel shame. You know you're indebted. You know you need forgiveness. And Jesus says, forgive you. I'm dying the death you deserve, but I'm living the life you couldn't have. I'm going to give it to you. So you are... By coming up here preaching, I know I'm restored. I believe what God said in His Word. But that truth is not supposed to end with you. You go from the receiver of a message to being a mailman. And you are called to bring restoration to others by pointing them to God's Word. And believing that that, Romans 1.16, has the power to save, not your persuasiveness, not your good-lookingness, not the perfect opportunity, but you believe the power for salvation is in you telling them about Jesus and what He's done in your life. And I pray you will believe that. I pray you will live that. And I pray you will look at this Word as the thing that God has given us to create new life in us and new life in others. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You. We praise You. We bless You for giving us Your Word. You didn't leave us in the dark. You were not an impersonable God that just started a machine and walked away, but You are the One who spoke. And You called us to righteousness. You declared what is good. You declared the way things were to be. And we, Father, confess we fell short. We fall short. But You didn't leave us there. And that is why we praise You for Your Word, Lord, which is good and right and pure entered into this world. That everything You demanded and everything You wanted became embodied in a man named Jesus Christ. Your Son. Fully God. Fully man. And He died for us, Lord. And He rose from the dead for us that we could be forgiven and we can experience new life. I pray for, for those who do not know You here, Lord, that they will see for the first time the glories and the beauty of Your Word. That they will, Father, believe and they'll receive Jesus Christ as Lord of their life and experience the forgiveness and the hope that they've so desperately sought for. And for those who are Christians here, Father, forgive us for not understanding and seeing and believing what Your Word is. Forgive us for dismissing or ignoring Your Word as advice from someone who wants to help rather than truth from a God who demands and a Father who loves. Would You create in each of us a hunger for Your Word? Holy Spirit, would You give us understanding of Your Word? And would You guide our lives by Your Word so that we can stand in confidence about what is true, about what is right, and most importantly, about the love and forgiveness found in Your Son, Jesus Christ, for when we don't live out Your Word perfectly. It's in His name we pray. Amen.